This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. This is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, where each week we review and preview all the big business and market stories with an Oanda Senior Market Analyst. And this week it is Craig Earlham in London. Good morning, Craig. How are you doing? I'm really good, mate. How are you? Yep. Pretty good. Let's start with the coronavirus, unfortunately, and give a market overview. The International Monetary Fund has warned over the impact of the virus, saying that a further spread to other countries, and there is evidence that that is happening, could derail what it calls a highly fragile world economic recovery. The markets seem to be blowing hot and cold with this, and they have been doing for quite a few weeks now. I'm a bit confused as to where we're at. Yeah, it feels like there's almost a different um, response in each asset class. So you look at stock markets, for example. This week, there's been a bit of a wobble. Uh, maybe wobble's a bit too strong. Uh, we've seen a bit of a flatlining. It seems to have lost a lot of momentum. Prior to this week, it seemed that there was this kind of belief that we were seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. We were turning a corner. The deceleration that we were seeing in new cases was uh, a sign for optimism. It's really lost momentum. And I think the reason behind that is because we're now starting to see the reality of what this all means from a purely corporate perspective. We've had Apple coming out this week warning about the impact of the coronavirus on their sales in China. China, obviously, a huge uh, smartphone market, but also on production as well uh, because factories shutting uh, for longer than expected and also taking longer to get up to uh, full production. And we've also had uh, Adidas uh, with the same Puma with the same and others have joined them as well, warning about the impacts that this has had. And I think we forget just how big a market it is for some of these uh, players as well. I think China, I think uh, the APAC region is around a third of Adidas sales. 85% of uh, capacity has effectively been uh, impacted by uh, the, the coronavirus so far. So, I mean, this is huge and there's lots more companies that we're likely to hear from now over the next few weeks. And that's the type of thing that's going to uh, cause problems for corporate America because when you start finally talking about the bottom line and the impact it's going to have on Q1 earnings season and potentially beyond, that's when investors may start to get a little bit more nervous. Then we look at a market like oil. Now, oil has been extremely vulnerable to the coronavirus over the course of the last uh, few weeks. It fell from around $70 when we were talking about US-Iran conflict down to $50. Um, So a really considerable drop on the back of uh, the outbreak of coronavirus. I mean, that's obvious why. It's because the impact impact that it has on immediate demand, right? So if you've seen a complete slowdown in the economy and people aren't going out, people aren't making trips, planes are grounded, etc., then suddenly the demand for fuel... um, uh, is, is significantly uh, diminished. So it creates um, near-term issues, but also medium-term problems as well. And we are seeing a bounce in there, that as well over the course of the last week and a half because of this deceleration in new cases. And that's rebounded around 10% since then. Then we look at something like gold. Gold, a traditional safe haven. It was a little bit flat uh, last week at times, even though stock markets were rallying. Uh, and it was a bit strange because there was no safe haven appeal, uh, but then there was also no unwinding of the safe haven appeal. Now that we've seen a bit of a stability in uh, in risk appetite effectively this week, then all of a sudden gold has just, just taken off. It's flown through 1600, which earlier this month on two occasions was a massive resistance barrier for it. We're, we're, we're now today at 1630, 1635, so we've really blown through that resistance. That risk off, uh, the, the kind of end of week risk aversion is really helping it. But it's just interesting interesting because stocks are still strong. We're not far from record highs. The dollar is at three-year highs, and yet gold is at seven-year highs. Uh, and when you put those together, that's quite rare because usually two of the main factors which drive gold are risk, well, risk appetite is pretty decent, or the dollar. 
and it's strong rather than weak, and yet gold at seven-year highs. So it sounds completely counterintuitive. It, it does sound completely counterintuitive, and the only logic I can really put on that is the same thing, which has maybe kept stock markets aloft throughout this process as well. Maybe the belief those good old central banks are going to step in, cut interest rates, uh, maybe do more QE if we're already at the end of the interest rate cycle, and that's what's inflating stock markets, uh, and maybe that's also what's inflating gold. Obviously, gold is an inflation hedge, and when central banks are raising gold, and stock markets tend to do quite well. That's the only real, um, the only real reason I can see why this would be happening. But that doesn't necessarily explain uh, the stronger dollar. But again, these things aren't always easily explained. You try to piece together logic uh, to build a picture. That's the picture we have right now, and it's a bit of a confusing one, I'll be honest. And I see that uh, President Xi is trying to remain uh, positive. Well, he would, wouldn't he? I mean, he says that China could still meet its 2020 economic growth target despite the outbreak and this of course is all ahead of this weekend's G20 meeting of finance ministers and central bankers hence that uh, warning from the IMF also some interesting indicators airlines I mean we're looking at uh, various sectors really badly affected by the coronavirus some sectors and not others the severe financial impact on the airlines is quite deep looking at Qantas it said the outbreak could cost it up to 150 million Australian dollars. Uh, Air France uh, estimates a 200 million euro loss. And the warnings keep coming. I mean, worrying for those particular sectors, airlines, travel, uh, all the big uh, holiday firms and Anything tour consumer spending. Indeed. You mentioned the deceleration of the outbreak. I'm not quite sure where we are today, Friday. There was certainly that continued deceleration of three consecutive days it is very early days still isn't it yeah i mean you raise a few different interesting points there to be honest like say it's really the consumer focused um, stocks uh, companies are all going to feel it in their own way we've referenced apple both on the uh, on the supply and the demand side you look at something like adidas on primarily on the demand side the airliners the hotel groups um, uh, but in manufacturers, obviously factories shutting down, etc., um, and only get now starting maybe at the end of this month getting back into uh, full capacity. And I think we're only going to hear about this over the next few weeks, really, just how impacted these companies have been. And like I say, uh, stock investors this week have been a little bit, not wobbled, not wobbled probably a bit stronger word, but they've been a bit deterred uh, by the noises that we're hearing from these uh, various companies. And you look at airliners, as you've just alluded to, this is also uh, an industry which is undergoing uh, consolidation where we're seeing various airlines actually going bankrupt because of the, the, the environment already isn't perfectly ideal for them. We're already seeing them uh, run on very low margins. So the, the margins are extremely fine. So when you're talking about losses of that magnitude, you wonder whether this is, these losses are actually sizable enough that could actually tip a company from being in trouble to in serious trouble and potentially at risk of default decline or, or maybe even uh, takeover targets, something like that. So... Certain industries are more vulnerable than others. There's also reports that we're going to see companies basically leaning on liquidity from uh, China because of the difficulties that they face and the need to stay afloat. So there is obviously going to be massive problems there uh, over the next few months. It's not just going to be a case of once we've dealt with the disease that everything else will just bounce back to normal. 
On the Chinese GDP side, yeah, they have said that they they still expect to meet full-year targets. I expect that will come with a healthy dose of fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, and let's face it, not many people really fully believe the numbers that we do, the official numbers that we do get from China that, uh, and haven't done for many, many years, whether it's trade numbers or whether it's um, or GDP numbers as well. There's been a lot of people, even when they were growing at 8%, were suggesting it was probably closer to 5 or 6. Now that we're tra- now that we're seeing the economy officially growing at 6, I'm sure people would suggest it's probably closer to 4 or 5. Uh, so if we we do see them uh, if we do see numbers in line with what they were targeting at the start of the year i think there's going to be a healthy dose of cynicism around just how accurate and complete those numbers are but i'm sure the authorities will make serious efforts over the course of the second half of this year to rebalance growth uh, across the whole year and that will mean like I say a lot of fiscal stimulus and we're already seeing monetary stimulus we've already seen some interest rate cuts already so i expect plenty more of that from the chinese authorities let's turn to the latest uk inflation figures and there was a sizable hike was this an outlier or significant I mean, did we see a rise in sterling following uh, that rate rise uh, that rise it was what, up from 1.3 percent to 1.8 percent which is uh, quite a big margin isn't it we briefly saw a rise in sterling but by the end of the day we were actually back in negative territory you'll remember this time last month when we got the last inflation figures we were talking about, is the Bank of England going to cut interest rates? This is a devastating fall in inflation. This could be a sign of things to come. They are now well below target. They, Many people suggesting they have to act, they have to cut interest rates. And the conversation that we had back then was, it's too quick to act. Usually when you see sharp moves in a number like the inflation reading, it is one of factors that are driving the move. And that's why I said at the time, we need to see two or three pieces of data to confirm the move. Well, yeah. we've actually seen it bounce back strongly and more than expected. I don't think we should read too much into this Peter data either. Let's see how the next month or two pans out and then we can take a, a kind of average run of the lot of them. And I think that's maybe how the markets are perceived. We saw that initial up reaction, which is just the, we've seen a number beat, it's bullish for the pound. But then once the reality kicked in that nothing really changes, we're still still around 50% on to see an interest rate cut this year and I wouldn't be surprised about that but I think that 50% is probably more reflected of the fact that the Bank of England is going to stay as they are this year and is probably the right decision currently that could change with the changes in the numbers but broadly speaking I think this is just reflective of a volatile environment that we have in the UK over the course of the November, December, January, February period uh, and then things will settle down we'll have a much better idea and of course the numbers were largely a result of higher prices at the pumps and Uh, airfares falling by less than a year ago and actually you know we are because of the coronavirus seeing the price of oil fall currently on the markets Uh, airfares i'm not sure about if if the airlines are struggling are they going to lower their prices or try and keep their margins but that's one of the interesting factors in this those rises were specific to sectors and it might be that you know these latest figures are just an outlier yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but I'd say logic would suggest that airlines care about capacity. And therefore, if they think people are going to be deterred from traveling, they need to incentivize them to yeah. uh, to to travel uh, that first and foremost. So I'd say first, I'd, I'd say we're probably going to see lower airfares on the back of this. I might be wrong. That would just be a, a, my... It'd be crazy not to, wouldn't it, really? Exactly. You want to draw people in, not deter people further. You're talking about two things which are quite volatile as well, especially the fuel prices. Fuel prices are naturally volatile. So the fact that we saw a higher jump this time 
again, it's 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 not really worth hanging your hat on. It's 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 not a massive deal. You always get a bit of a, an overreaction to the data when there's a big miss or a big beat. But I think broadly speaking, the reason why things have settled down is because nothing really changed. And we've just been hanging around this 130 level in the pound dollar for weeks and weeks and weeks now. Ever since the Brexit story kind of passed post-election, we've just lingered around 130. And this hasn't changed on the back of any of the data that we've had this week. So what do we make of HSBC, uh, Craig? It says it's going to slash 35,000 jobs over three years as part of a major shake-up. And it has issued a warning uh, about the coronavirus as well. There's a big shake-up going on at HSBC. Why is that? So they've got an interim CEO. Uh, the, the, the bank... It's Noel Quinn. Yes. Yeah. And the, the bank has really struggled over the last decade um, to regain, to refine itself in many ways. This is the third major restructuring that it is undergoing. I think he's trying to prove himself to uh, to be capable of the top job because even though he's he, he, he apparently wants it, it the, the, the board are still looking elsewhere for the person to take this on a permanent basis. And I think he's almost trying to prove that he is the person to take this company forward. You could argue that it's warranted uh, a kind of major restructuring. You look at where they're pulling away from, they're pulling away from like the US investment banking scene. The US banks are absolutely dominant in this area. We've seen RBS pull back, we've seen Deutsche Bank pull back, others have pulled back from this kind of scene. It's become less profitable, it's very capital intensive. So this move from HSBC is not entirely surprising. They've moved away from Europe uh, in terms of commercial, uh, I think, uh, commercial banking. And again, you're looking at a, a, an area of the world where we've seen very low growth, uh, persistent levels of low growth. We've got low interest rates, which squeezes bank margins. So again, an area where you could argue maybe that's not too bad a decision. And then you look at somewhere like Asia. Uh, uh, now, Asia, if I'm not mistaken, accounts for around half its revenues and 90% of its profits. So the idea that you're going to effectively offload $100 billion worth of assets in all of these called their capital-intensive low-return areas and redirect that capital into somewhere that's far more profitable, it sounds sensible. The problem is that it comes at a cost of 35,000 jobs. It comes at a cost uh, of, of, what, four, they want to say $4.5 billion a year. I think the cost is around eight. Dollars, yeah. Yeah, it's a massive restructuring program and there's no guarantees. And it's also at a time, obviously, when Asia, when we are seeing China slowing, when we're seeing the coronavirus, when we've seen China engaged in a trade war. So it comes with risks, obviously, but this is a massive restructuring program. And I think one thing that investors were a bit uh, put off by was the fact that this had been speculated about. It was far more aggressive than they were expecting. Perhaps maybe investors were anticipating a share buyback to kind of sweeten the deal uh, for investors. And they said no no share buybacks for the next two years. So maybe that is one of the reasons why we got a bit of a negative response from a share price perspective. But I think broadly speaking, it's an ambitious uh, agenda and only time will tell whether it's actually working. But a lot of it does seem pretty rational and logical. Okay, let's look ahead to next week. Uh, not a huge amount going on. We've got the US presidential debate, which is uh, even more interesting now. We've got Michael Bloomberg certainly on board those debates. And uh, yes, it's interesting to watch him. I'm a famous name in financial services, uh, Mr. Bloomberg. But he's actually got quite a nasty shock, hasn't he? He's not getting it his way. He's so used to have been on this upward trajectory over decades of being the man, suddenly he's rather exposed in these debates. And let's be honest, he's not really a politician and he can't quite cope. He must be wondering whether it's a mistake because, you know, he's spending, okay, he can afford to spend the hundreds of millions of dollars on the advertising, but does this affect the Bloomberg brand or his legacy even? 
No, I don't think so. I, I, I think this is his first major debate on the political stage and maybe it has been a bit of a shock to the system and he thought it was going to be a bit more straightforward. Although Trump did say only a week ago that he's a terrible debater and maybe... This he's is, not great. Maybe, maybe, maybe he absolutely hit the nail on the head. Yeah. I'll be honest, I didn't watch the debate itself so I'm, I can only go off what I've actually read about it but it does seem like it was a bit of a disappointing first performance but he still has something that all the other candidates don't have and that's hundreds of millions of dollars of his own money. But is that to convince a positive people. though as far as the great American public is concerned? because they're playing the line and of course many of the characters who are still in the Democrat debate are of the left I'm talking about Elizabeth Warren and uh, Bernie Sanders obviously they're playing the line well this is another multi-billionaire trying to take the White House and it's all about money but then I guess what he's asking them is uh, and what he's going to be asking the electorate and the voters the Democratic voters is this is not about whether you prefer myself or Bernie Sanders or myself or Elizabeth Warren. This is about who's more capable of defeating Donald Trump because you can you can put in your eyes the ideal person in charge of the Democratic Party, but if they can't beat Donald Trump, then what, what use is it? Whereas he's saying, the only reason I'm involved in this process, a year ago I said I don't want to be involved in this and I actually think that my friend Joe Biden covers the centre ground in the way that I would want to, uh, but he's seen his popularity fall. So he's effectively got involved because he said, we need a centrist candidate if we're going to defeat Donald Trump and it's the only way that we can do it. And he feels like other candidates have veered too far to the left yeah. and have no chance. I get that. So that's his yeah. message. That's going to be his message uh, to the people who are voting. And yes, he's not very done very well on the stage. But how many people actually watch these things? I know they are relatively popular. Mm. But when you're pushing out adverts and every time someone's watching TV, they're seeing an advert from you. And every time you look at a billboard, they're seeing a picture of you. And they're seeing your message push across everywhere. And your message is, I am better than this guy at everything. I am self-made. I'm a bigger billionaire. He's not even a billionaire as he's a, as he's. A uh, joked uh, in the past, potentially even seriously, I should say. Uh, and he's he's saying, I am the person to beat Donald Trump. A vote for me is a vote of someone who can beat Donald Trump. I can get people in the sense of I can pull some of the more repu- moderate Republican voters our way. This is not a matter of ideology. This is a matter of stopping him. And that message may actually resonate. I, for, for me, don't get me wrong, it would be an interesting debate to see Donald Trump go up against someone like Bernie Sanders. Uh, but I honestly... Uh, having seen our experience here in the UK, while mm. there is obviously more appetite than we've maybe given credit for in the past for uh, the further left reaches of a party uh, and a more socialist ideology, it mm. still didn't come mm. close to actually winning. And if if Michael Bloomberg has any sense, he will nod to the experience of the UK and say, this is a great idea, but the reality is that it only matters who wins. It will be really interesting to see how they do, how they, those two do come up against each other uh, and whether maybe Michael Bloomberg can come out of his shell because he's certainly got the record uh, to yeah. stand on, both as, obviously, setting up his own multi-billion dollar business, but also as mayor of New York. And uh, and that comes, obviously, that's going to come with challenges as well and things that he has been criticised and comments he's been criticised for. Um, he's not for really before. selling his story very well. I mean, he doesn't come from a very wealthy background. It's an ordinary middle-class background and he's made an incredible fortune many people think well he he certainly deserves the plaudits for that but as a personality he's a bit wooden isn't he yeah uh, and that could still work against him and like i said this week ed couldn't join us we'll get him on next week so obviously he's going to have a much better idea of what the feel is over there but i've been speaking to him about michael bloomberg for the last year and a half really because i've been saying to him i i think he probably is the best candidate to have a chance of actually beating Donald Trump. Because you've got to remember, you're not just taking on Donald Trump, uh, the politician. You're not just taking on Donald Trump, the personality. You're taking on Donald Trump, the president of the United States, at a time when you've got 
record low unemployment, when you've got strong job creation, when you've got a strong economy, when the US is doing very well for itself. And that's an ex- it's extremely difficult to beat any president when you are sitting on an economy that's as strong as it is right now. And then you're taking on Trump as well. It's an extremely difficult task. And I've been very curious as to how someone like Michael Bloomberg would face off against him, basically saying, I am everything he is but a level above. It's whereas you're taking a message like Bernie Sanders and what you're when you're promising people kind of a revolution and when you're promising people great change, there's a lot of people who that will resonate with, but there's also an awful lot of people who will say, I don't really want great change because everything's kind of good right now. And I think that might be one of the difficulties that someone like Bernie Sanders may face. I may be wrong, but uh, I, feel, I feel like, therefore, Michael Bloomberg might have a better chance of beating Trump. The irony is, of course, that uh, Bloomberg find, might find it more difficult to win the Democratic nomination than actually the presidency. Yeah, uh, and um, I mean, let's face it, we saw that here in the UK again. Uh, we saw that no one could beat uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, for in, in the Labour leadership contest. But if you went out into the broader country, you could argue that another candidate who was maybe a little bit more moderate, who was promising less um, ambitious uh, change, may have actually resonated more with the yeah. broad, broader public. Again, that's only in theory, of course, uh, but... Um, uh, this, this, I guess we'll soon find out uh, whether that is the case. OK, uh, before we leave you, what else should we look ahead to next week? From a general markets perspective, the coronavirus is going to continue to dominate. We've got a few pieces of data throughout the week, some income and spending and inflation data from the US on Friday as well. But broadly speaking, I think it's looking like a pretty quiet week kind of like this week was in the main we've got some earnings and things but again we're right at the back end of earnings season at this point so it's not attracting quite as much attention although there are some still quite interesting names out there one of the more interesting ones maybe right now is beyond meat given kind of changing eating environment that we are seeing yeah okay well hopefully we'll get to speak to ed moyer in new york as well next week but until then craig thanks very much indeed thanks a lot From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.